What are the Langoliers, Mr. Toomey? My father used to say the Langoliers were little creatures that lived in closets and sewers and other dark places. He said that all they really were was hair and teeth and fast little legs. And my dad said there were, there were thousands of Langoliers. There had to be thousands of them because there are millions of bad little boys and bad little girls scampering all over the world. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Langoliers. The Langoliers, they have purpose. In fact, you could say that the Langoliers are purpose personified. You said you'd be lying in bed one night and you'd hear them coming towards you. Crunching, jumping. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Written more than 40 novels. None as strange as this. Hosted by Arnie. Since I was five years old, you've been, you've been loading on the pressure, seeing if you could make me explode. Stuart. You're one of them too, aren't you? A Langolier. And Jacob. I think he really knows his stuff. What kind of stuff? I don't know exactly, but well, I think it's worth finding out. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. I suggest you just relax, because everything's going to be fine. That's going to be wonderful. Listener discretion is advised. I guess this is it, Captain. Have a nice trip. Today we're discussing Stephen King's The Langoliers, starring Patricia Wedding, Dean Stockwell, David Morse, Mark Lindsay Chapman, Frankie Faison, Baxter Harris, Kimber Riddle, Christopher Collette, with Kate Maberly and Bronson Pinchot as Craig Toomey, directed by Tom Holland. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I promise I'll be good. Just make this movie go away. (laughs) That crunching sound you hear, that's me just chewing this up. It's Stuart. And this is Jacob, dear boy. I don't know why it's Justin supposed to be on this, right? This is a video game adaptation of Pac-Man. Like, Stephen King got super scared playing Pac-Man one night and shit out a 1,200-page book, right? That's the story of the Langoliers. No joke. My mom came down in the middle of me watching this and was like, oh, they made Pac-Man into a movie? Like, she really did think. She had known I had done Sonic and the Hedgehog. She thought I always watch movies about video game characters, so she just thought, yeah, that must be what he's watching. This is the gritty pac-man reboot just like that battleship movie where it's about aliens all of a sudden yeah you're just trying to get out of this i know i've already watched it i wish i got out of it i was telling marjorie i had to watch this and she goes oh i haven't seen that since tv that's a really good one i'm like no whoa no i think you're misremembering and so i brought her in during certain scenes and she's like i must have been thinking about something else balky's in this Yeah, no, no, this movie is not famous. It is infamous. I've never seen it, but I knew its reputation because I watched The Soup, and, like, they love cutting to that CGI in The Soup as a punchline. (laughs) I didn't know that, but it is its own punchline. I saw the second night of this. The best night. Yeah, the best night, yeah. It's the night you want to be. And we were kind of, like, we started actually trying to watch, and then we grew bored. Then the Langolier showed up, and we got really excited. (laughs) Then we got bored again, but we were like, what the hell? Why is this on? On ABC television, prime time. 
listen, this was 1995, one year before Stephen King's The Stand had dominated in ratings, and it still holds up. If you go back to that review, I know you guys find more flaws with it than I do, and I know the last four hours aren't as strong as the first four hours, but I was so excited when ABC was doing yet another miniseries. Now, It's because of The Stand. I mean, I could have looked before The Stand and been like, remember, this is the same network that brought you the Tommyknockers. But, right, to put it sequentially, they started with it, pretty good. Then they, yeah, shat the bed with Tommyknockers. Then they went to The Stand, and now the bed be shat again. (laughs) And I had read this book. This was either the first or one of the very first books I got from that Stephen King mail-order library series that my godparents signed me up to. It's in an anthology of short stories. Like Different Seasons, Stephen King did Four Past Midnight. Langoliers is a short story? It's a novella. It's a very long story. Okay. It means it's 300-some pages, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm just wondering how they get three hours out of a short story, but it's a King short story. Yeah. Different thing. Yeah, king-sized is, I think, where he gets his last name. But I remembered reading the book. I remember having good thoughts about it. But by the time this came out, you know, four years later, I had vague memories of it. But I was there the first night watching the Langoliers as it was broadcast. I was a little less excited going back night two as it was getting broadcast. And I then watched it a second time in the late aughts. Just because I'm like, is it really as bad as I remembered? And <laughs> Was I on mushrooms that night when I saw those Pac-Mans chomping around? Or was I sober? I gotta watch it again and find out. I mean, they are such whores that anything with Stephen King's name on it, they're gonna put on DVD. And so when it came out on DVD, I'm like, well, then it can't be as bad as I remember if they're trying to sell it. <laughs> it's put on the prestigious format of DVD. It's gotta yeah. be good, right? So I watched the DVD and went, wow, this is... <laughs> Every bit as bad as I thought. And so when I saw it was on the schedule for this week, you know, I don't like flying. I absolutely hate flying. It's not just a fear of flying, although I do have that. But it's also I hate the experience. I hate going to the airport. I hate having to be there early so that I can stand in a long fucking line before security. You gotta take your shoes off. You can't have your bottle of water with you. Yeah, I'm in the TSA Fast Pass now, but still, it's a pain in the ass. And then you sit there... And then you're, like, shoulder to shoulder with some sweaty stranger. I kid you not that on a flight I took to California, I went in and it was like a bad sitcom. I look and there are two huge, like, burly biker dudes in leather coats on either side and I'm the middle seat. So it's like, I hate flying and I really dread it every time I go somewhere and that's how I felt approaching this movie, too. <laughs> just like a week ahead of time, I'm like, oh, fuck. I got to watch this. Who are the obese, stinky bikers I'm going to have to sit in between to watch this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those stinky ones are Bronson Pinchot and David Morse. By he the is way. sweating so much in this movie. <laughs> he has a reason to be scared. Man, oh, man. Yeah. I put it all aside. I've already mentioned that I had stopped reading Stephen King, but for these podcasts, I'm going to try to keep up. And I picked up four past midnight for the first time this week i was going to put aside all of my memory of the movie the tv miniseries and just say was it ever a good idea i mean it had to be something there for them to select this 
story and not one of the three other ones to put on television. You know what? It reminded me of Kurt Vonnegut. You guys read Kurt Vonnegut? Oh, I love Kurt Vonnegut. One of my favorite authors. Yeah. I had to read Slaughterhouse-Five when I was in high school. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Yeah, he's mostly a satirist, but he gets the tag sometimes of a sci-fi writer. And the story doesn't remind me so much of Vonnegut as Kilgore Trout. He has this character, he has a reoccurring character in all of his novels is this sci-fi writer, Kilgore Trout. And the way it kind of works is... If Vonnegut can't think of how to expand this cool idea he has, you know, like he's done time travel with Slaughterhouse-Five and other sci-fi notions, he'll just describe it as a plot in a Kilgore Trout novel, a book within the book, and you'll just get this cool paragraph. It sounds like something you want to read and you never will because you can't dramatize it. That's the Langoliers. Like, it is actually a really cool notion about, you know, getting stuck in time, that things eat away the past. All ideas that for a paragraph or two you entertain and you think, oh, this is really neat. But at 300 pages and with King's sense of characterization, yeah, it's not a very good story to begin with. I would just say it doesn't really work on the page. I reread it as well for this, and King recycles so many ideas, and what I got from this one was kind of like the mist in an airport, right? Yeah. Where you've got a group of strangers who are forced to huddle together, and there's a monster outside that's going to kill them all eventually, but there's also a psycho in their own midst that they have to deal with. I mean, didn't Lost rip this off? Well, he ripped himself off with Under the Dome. I mean, it's just, this is a king thing. I'm surprised none of these people in the flight were religious fanatics, you know? Yeah. And this was written around the time of Tommyknockers, so Stephen King was flirting with doing sci-fi instead of horror for a while. But he also flirting with narcotics and illegal drugs? Like, I'm guessing. This was published long after his sobriety. I mean, this was after the Stand Uncut edition. It was published and rewritten when he was sober. Whenever the first text was written, I don't know. This is what you write when you're sober and you're trying to remember how good of trips (laughs) you used to have. (laughs) Yeah, the tracer, like describing the acid flashback. Yep. I remembered liking the story, and I do think the concept sort of works, but my worst thing about this story is it is 300 pages of characters just telling the reader what's going on based on the most ludicrous of deductions. I mean, yes, and it's every single character. Oh, so they did a good job adapting all those ludicrous deductions into this TV series we're going to talk about. This miniseries is such a faithful adaptation. I had a feeling. (laughs) Dialogue is taken directly from the prose. Every single character action is taken. There are some differences. And believe it or not, this is the abridged version. But yes, Tom Holland came in. Not Spider-Man. (laughs) <laughs> no, the Tom Holland. <laughs> the one we get stuck talking about more often. The one that sometimes <laughs> I like when he does Fright Night, but most of the time it's a thinner or a child's play. And this is, again, to put everything in contextualization. We're going as Stephen King published the stuff, but this was the thing that got him the job doing thinner. No. Oh. They wanted him to come back after this? I would think that this is the kind of thing that makes you lose... Every job that you have. Yeah. Was it a ratings hit then? Did this do well for ABC? The LA Times headline was ABC's Langoliers gobbles up Sunday, but not NBC. Okay, so it held its own. On the Sunday night, 
it won, but NBC's Monday night was just too strong for it. Or people just said, fuck Mm. that shit for Monday night. (laughs) (laughs) I'm betting it's a lot of the latter, but yeah, probably some of the former as well. NBC was the powerhouse network at that time and throughout the 90s, really. Well, Entertainment Weekly gave it a B, calling it an episode of The Twilight Zone stretched out to four hours. (laughs) And that gets you a B? Yeah. I thought that got you an F. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement. No. (laughs) This extended Twilight Zone didn't kill anybody like the movie did, so there's that. (laughs) All right. Sure. We can't be sure of that. It almost killed me. It had to kill most of these people's careers. I can't believe David Morris is still getting jobs after this. We're going to see him twice more in the Stephen King retrospective. He Oh, he shows up in everything. Yeah, I know. That's- he would go on from this to be in The Green Mile and Hearts in Atlantis. But where's Balky? Wow. Never to return. <laughs> Woo! You know, to put you back in my mindset at the time... Like, it's got Balky. It can't be that bad. Perfect Strangers was hilarious. <laughs> Balky never hurt anyone. Here's exactly what happened. When the movie True Romance came out, I'm like, fuck that movie. It's got Bronson Pinchot. It can't possibly be good. And Stewart's like, no, no, you got to see it. Bronson Pinchot's really good. What? No, I can't believe it. So I saw True Romance, fell in love with True Romance. And so I'm like, Bronson Pinchot can act. And so when he was announced for this, I'm like, well, at least they got the guy from True Romance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Arnie. Not Christian Slater, not any of the big people from True Romance, but Bronson Pinchot. No, they couldn't afford any of those people, Jacob, because I was reading some articles from around the time, Cinema Fantastique and Fangoria, and this is produced by the same producer and the same production company that did all those previous miniseries Stuart talked about. And with this one, what the producer said was, We decided against a big-name cast like we had had in a couple of the previous ones because the budget was spent in other areas. Whoa. (laughs) There's one set in this thing. They're on a plane. The entire film. Those video effects. We spent a disproportional amount of money into the computer-generated effects Mm. for a TV movie. I want to know. That means they had to redo them. Something was even worse before. (laughs) Yeah. I'll give them this. They didn't cheap out on... It looks cheap on the screen. It really does. So what I'm about to tell you is probably going to be shocking. Uh, How many millions of dollars did they sink into the CGI? This was filmed on location at the Bangor Airport. They paid to shut it down. They shut down a portion of it. Oh, wow. Like, what does that get? Three flights a day? I mean, come on. It's the Bangor International Airport, Stuart. It has flights to Canada. I was going to say Canada, right? Nova Scotia. Whenever Stephen King wants to go somewhere out of state, that's his private place. Okay, sure. But also, they wanted realism for the airline stuff. And Tom Holland said, I'm approaching this like it's a theatrical release. I don't care the medium it's actually going to come out on. I'm going to treat this like I do any theatrical release. So they bought an airplane, <laughs> chopped it up. Oh, my gosh. I don't know why they just didn't fly the airplane to Bangor, but they actually cut it into pieces and had it transported. Wait, they shipped it and then put it back together? Wow. <laughs> I thought you were saying, oh, they had to chop it up so they could get the cameras in the right angle. No, they shipped an airplane flies. 
<laughs> Get your ultra Volta and take it to Bangor for you. This is the kind of genius thinking that produces a TV movie like the Langoliers. Wow. So when I'm seeing shots in the cockpit and I'm like, oh, that looks so fake. It's a real cockpit. It's just poorly filmed. I thought this was just a soundstage. And like, I'm like, wow, they got one set for this entire film. Real airport, real plane. I'm even more upset now that they never spend time in first class. Like everyone can fit in first class. It's a free first class trip and everyone's back in coach. <laughs> I'm even more upset now. <laughs> Maybe they didn't ship that part up. <laughs> But they spent so much on the CG effects that they just couldn't afford people better than David Morse or the 40-something star of 30-something. Yeah. Well, you know what? I don't think that will be my biggest complaint. Hey, it's got Dean Stockwell. I was excited about that. I am too. Quantum Leap. Yeah, I don't think the cast is my major complaint here. We've seen (laughs) many a third-rate cast muddle through a Stephen King miniseries and do... You know, who was Molly Ringwald during the stand? I mean, it's kind of par for the course. The it's There are bigger problems here. Let's get to it. Arnie, give them the plot. On a red-eye flight from Los Angeles to Boston, 10 passengers wake up mid-flight to discover all the other passengers, crew, and even the pilots have disappeared from the plane, but their purses, jewelry, and wigs remain. Fortunately, one of the passengers is an airline pilot, Brian Engel, played by David Morse. He and a mysterious British assassin, Nick Hopewell, played by Mark Lindsay Chapman, become the de facto leaders of the group. As no airports are responding, Nick decides to reroute the flight to a smaller airport to avoid a possible collision. So he flies the group to Bangor, Maine. While most of the remaining passengers are just scared, one man named Craig Toomey, played by Bronson Pinchot, has an important meeting in Boston, and he becomes aggressive and then despondent when his demands are met with force. (laughs) Are you tearing up the script? (laughs) I wish he was. Landing in Bangor, they discover the entire airport is deserted. More, the air is sterile, food has no flavor, and all beer and soda is flat. Sounds like every flight I've taken, but all right. (laughs) Mystery writer Bob Jenkins, played by Dean Stockwell, deduces that the airplane went through a time rift. How does he deduce this? He was on Quantum Leap. (laughs) (laughs) He's a mystery writer. He's Sherlock Holmes. Come on. (laughs) The awake passengers continued to their destination, But the sleeping passengers went back in time, which makes me wonder, are there now two airplanes? But we'll get there. But that's why everything seems stale is they're in the past. Craig finds a gun and tries to take control and get them to fly him back to Boston, but the gun doesn't work because the gunpowder isn't igniting, so Craig runs off. The group decide to fly back the way they came, hoping to go back through the time rift. But that plan is momentarily disrupted by Craig attacking several of them with the knife, killing one passenger, and wounding a young blind girl named Dinah, who also happens to have The Shining. Yeah, because it's a Stephen King property. <laughs> How much more of this shit is he going to recycle? Does she have like a seeing eye dog that's rabid that got bit by a bat, maybe? <laughs> Craig is beaten and left at the airport as the remaining passengers board to fly back, And not a moment too soon, as strange CGI cartoons that the group call Langoliers are starting to eat everything, ending the past. But Bob realizes the crew must be asleep to go back through the rift, 
As Brian needs to be alive to land the plane, Nick sacrifices himself, flying the plane through the rift while the rest sleep. Brian lands the plane at an abandoned LAX, but Bob realizes they're in the future. After a few minutes, the present catches up to them, and they are surrounded by people in the busy LAX airport as credits roll. I, I believe as they jump in the air, freeze frame, and credits roll. <laughs> yeah, they're frozen in time again. It's very sad the way it ends. <laughs> when they were running all towards the screen at the end, I just, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen this in 12 years, but I'm like, they're going to jump and freeze frame, aren't they? One of them does, yeah. <laughs> Your heart sinks, right? You're like, oh, no. Yep. It can't resist all these cliches. And you know what? I love it because one of the things that I truly enjoy, you know, many people love the comedy movie Airplane, but I like the movies that Airplane was spoofing. The disaster Airplane movie from the 70s is always filled with these kinds of stock, ridiculous characters getting into some kind of flight calamity. This feels like Stephen King just kind of doing airport 1989. I agree, because at the end, I was hoping they'd take that scene from Airport where the plane, like, crashes into the building and just reuse it for here. Yeah, (laughs) the effects aren't as good, and that's saying something, because that was the 70s. But when we get started here, I definitely feel like we're on that familiar melodramatic ground when we see all these different types, strangers boarding a plane, and what will bring them all together, but disaster. It does seem a little weird. You Usually with a disaster movie, you got this ensemble and you f- it feels like the first act is just here's all your characters with their little bit of backstory with their adventure. Here, it feels like we get on this plane very quick. Like, we'll see something with Nick. But what really just sticks out is Bronson Pinchot is to me. Like, I lost 43 million. And then you got this like blind girl staring at it. Like, it is so bizarre. Like, and then you're up, almost on the plane. Like, we got to get one more character who's got probably the funniest backstory in this besides to me. But it, it does feel like... Like, we get on there real quick, which is weird, because this is a two-night miniseries. Yeah, they have the time to expand, but you got to think in terms of TV, you want to get to the problem really fast, because people turn the channel. And so they are under an enormous crunch within the first commercial break to establish what the story is, and that is being in a limbo plane flight. Admittedly, because my thought would be you could establish personal drama ahead of time, but that all gets aborted. Every single reason they're getting on the plane goes to hell. None of them make it to Boston to do all these important things they were going there to do. The little girl never gets her eyes. But she does get to see. They try some poetry in here. There will be some magical, you'll get your wish anyway kind of shit. I thought it was going to be more time related. Like we'd find out like there's something in their past and this would somehow give them a second chance. Like, no, I don't really get a feeling of any of that, like a regret, except again, maybe from Nick because he's an assassin. He's a mean dude killing people for the queen. Yeah, let's run him down. Nick is the strangest one. The fact that, like, he's getting on a flight, being handed a photo of a IRA agent's mole, and he's got a killer by Thursday for some reason, for the crown to be happy. Suddenly we're in Patriot games here. What the hell? (laughs) And she wasn't IRA in the book, so that was a nice topical add-in. And, yeah, he passes the blind girl and... 
we'll find out she's going to get a special operation that will make her see like yeah at least give her like 70% of her vision if not all of it I don't know what kind of operation this is very dubious all of this stuff and then she immediately senses something strange as Bronson Pinchot is getting out of his limo and who who doesn't yeah so strange you could be blind and sense how like <laughs> off this character is yeah he's lost 43 million and knows it and wants to race to a board of directors to tell him the bad news super excited about it. I can't wait to ruin my life. This is when we get to first see Bronson Pinchot, and I think his acting is on display here. Is this his fault, or is this Tom Holland's fault? Was he directed to act this way? Like, this is bad. Stuart, you're saying you got to get to the plot real quick, the problem to keep these TV audiences involved. I see this performance. I'm changing the channel. It has to be Pinchot. I mean, I've seen him in a lot of stuff. He was in Second Sight, right? That was him. Mm, Yeah, no, it's a contest, really, about which one is going to be the worst. I mean, is it the blind girl? Is it Pinchot? Or is it Bethany? Because we have this, like, girl that should be going to the Lilith Fair, but she's apparently, like, a druggie that is being sent off to her aunt. Like, it'll be asked, do you need a rehab? Yeah, she's going to rehab. She does not look like she's strung out. No, the line is, do you need a rehab? (laughs) What? (laughs) I I don't know what you mean. Do I need a rehab? Yeah, I'm on drugs. Yes, I guess I need a rehab. But yet she never has withdrawal. She never really needs to toke up or shoot up or anything. No, she never says, wow, we just had a a time adventure. My past (laughs) is behind me. I can be clean. Like, this is basic 101 stuff. You know, I love it at the very end, though, because we got this guy, Albert, the violinist, and he goes, that was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And we get Bethany, and she just goes, cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she is definitely channeling her inner Keanu. Like, she's like, whoa. Like she's, she's there to appeal to us, right? Like, the young people that tuned in. And she definitely had those 90s nipples going on. I mean, that was right out of the Friends playbook, right? I guess. I mean, is she attractive? I mean, I certainly... we. I'm just saying she had him poking through the very thin shirt. That's all I'm saying. I don't know if she's attractive, but it was making me think a lot of Rachel. Certainly, she's going to be appealing to Albert, the nerdy violinist, who, in the book, they establish him a little bit more as someone that wants to be a cowboy, like that wants to be a gunslinger and is reading books about the Old West. And Is that why he knows how to wrap up a toaster in a blanket to hit someone over the head? <laughs> that is the teachable moment where he realizes <laughs> violence isn't right. And we'll get there. I mean, ooh, it's gold. It's gold when he learns that lesson. But I feel like his backstory gets lost here because, again, they've got to establish everybody by... 20 minutes first commercial break. That said, Stephen King wasn't great about their backstories either because by the end of the 300 pages, there were still characters. I'm like, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, like Rudy, who just sleeps and wants to eat the whole (laughs) time, my favorite character. I'll talk about it when we get there, but the one legit sincere laugh, and it's because of Rudy. Yeah, in the book, he actually is a character that never gets a name. He is, he literally sleeps through the whole adventure and wakes up at the end. He's the punchline at the end being like, what happened? Yeah, this should have just been about Rudy, just his adventure. (laughs) But there was another guy who also was always trying to get to the cafeteria. It's really repeated characters here. Well, yeah, there's Don. He does something with tools, and I can't even remember 
why he's on this flight. Don't He doesn't do much except die, I think. Yeah, he's the token black guy. He's the one they're going to kill. Imagine that. And yeah, Patricia Wedding, I think it gets forgotten now, but she would have been a pretty big star because she was on 30-something, which was a pretty progressive television drama that would have been canceled a year or two before this. This is the one who plays Laurel, the school teacher. Yes. Yeah, so you're, what you're saying is 30-something had already gotten past its prime where nobody was watching it. And then a couple of years after that point, she's so low that she's coming to work on the Langoliers. Well, there was no series called 40-something, so Langoliers it is. Yeah, and again, if you ever wanted to know kids, millennials, and, and younger, what life was like before the internet, personal ads. She's answering something in the back of a magazine, meeting a stranger. I, I mean, they're not wrong with that. I guess it would be embarrassing, but people did that. Oh, sure. And do now. But again, it's not the back of a magazine. These days, you can at least FaceTime. I mean, in the book, he sent her literally one photo. They had a couple phone calls, and then she was on a flight to Boston. These days, you got FaceTime and you Skype, and then by the time you can get together, you're probably sick of each other anyway. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like the luckiest man in the whole movie is whoever her date is. Like, that he never gets to meet her. And can you imagine if she got off the plane and was talking about Langoliers and we're the new people? We're the new people. I mean, he'd be like, uh, yeah, th- you got to get back on that plane. Yeah, go to Ireland and go make peace with whoever Nick wants you to make peace with. Yeah, I don't want to date you. I, I'm sorry. I'll pay for the flight. Goodbye. And then we have the... Dean Stockwell, this is the Stephen King character, right? This is the writer, the mystery writer. King said he based this character on himself, so obviously this character knows everything. <laughs> what, what a shock, Stephen. Yes. Uh-huh, yeah, best-selling author, mystery writer. He's a mystery writer, not a horror writer. See, there's some fictionalization there, but yes. Yeah, I, I caught on to it. King tried to throw me off with that twist, but I saw through it. Whenever you have a weird concept that's hard to wrap your mind around, you need a character to monologue, and this is the one that's going to deduce everything and explain what the hell is going on. Yeah, I, how about a physicist? Can we get a physicist on this flight? <laughs> yeah. That's what's going to help me understand what's really going on. Yeah, they could have done that. That would have been kind of fun. He should have been a doctor or, yeah, yes, doing something with a ray gun. <laughs> I would much prefer that or the government guy, even if it's a British government guy, knowing more than the average layperson knows versus, look, the beer is flat. We're in the past. <laughs> Drink up. I mean, okay, if you say so. I'll hit this a couple more times and believe you. <laughs> Where's Bethany? Do you got it blunt? <laughs> I need the bong like super bad right now. And finally, we have the pilot. My favorite backstory. Who, in the book, to me, he was the lead character. Yes. It was an ensemble piece, but we got his point of view more than anybody else's point of view. So when I see David Morse's third build... Already, I'm, like, confused as to what they're doing with the story. Yeah, I, the actor was on St. Elsewhere. He was a TV star, like most of these people here. So some people would recognize him. But the heat was off of St. Elsewhere. By this point, that show had been canceled almost like By a, a decade. decade. Yeah, so he was probably just less lustrous to brag about than some of the other actors in here who would be more familiar to TV audiences. And Bronson Pinchot. He gets the and Bronson Pinchot. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, well, he steals the movie. I do feel like it's it's Bronson's show once he gets going here. But we got to talk about Angle because he's not the pilot of this flight. Yeah, there's two weird things going on for him. One, he's in his own airport movie that's ending. Like when he shows up, he's like, yeah, the air pressure failed and we almost all became human pate. What? (laughs) Can we take a moment? Can we all like focus on that for a second? Yeah, I feel like, oh, now you're going to be doing reports. Like there's a lot of paperwork you got to do involved with some kind of airline fiasco like that yes lawyers would be there i'm sure of that yes instead it's some guy that said hey by the way your ex-wife just burn up in boston you need to get on this red eye right now and go see the corpse look i got an ex-wife um i don't know who would track me down to tell me she burned up and if she had okay i'm not getting on a flight to go see the corpse well it's it's a weird thing to ask anyone that just finished a red eye from what japan or whatever he was coming from especially to acts like i don't know maybe they share custody of kids and that just wasn't discussed no they have no kids i believe it's even (laughs) part of the backstory in the Mm. book is that they fought over kids yeah it is some kind of soap opera thing So, yeah, it's a real weird thing that's bringing most of them together on a plane. And I'm game. I'm laughing already. And certainly when we see these graphics of this supposed real airplane as it takes flight. I mean, they couldn't get stock footage. Like, they literally just couldn't (laughs) show a plane flying in the clouds. We have to get this. Yeah, they couldn't actually fly the plane that they purchased. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't understand why that was CGI. And to be honest, this is the best CGI in the film. But... On the DVD, it stuttered. It just wasn't smooth. It's like, all right, to use terminology of the time, they didn't even have a Pentium computer. They exported it on a 486 DX33 (laughs) with two megs of RAM. And so it was choppy. I'm like, is this DVD bad that I'm watching it on? No, everything else was smooth. They just literally didn't render well. Yeah. Okay. So we need an inciting incident. We need a grabber that's going to hold you through the first commercial break. And it's kind of a left-behind scenario. I don't know if that book series had started yet, but the whole Christian rapture thing is kind of what I get the vibe of when the blind girl realizes everyone's gone. At one point, there was a character who was pretty devoutly Jewish in the book. It's the violinist Albert. He starts thinking about the Bible, and I'm like, obviously he's going to discuss the rapture. And no, they never get to the rapture in it. I'm like, that seems like the obvious conclusion I would draw if everybody's wigs and purses were left <laughs> yeah. and they disappeared. It's not just their jewelry. He's like picking up colostomy bags and things. He's like, hey, look at this. This came out from someone's ass. <laughs> that plane's got to stink. I mean, Mike, can you imagine? Can you imagine all of the, the dentistry and the internal pacemakers? <laughs> You'd think, like, their gold fillings are left behind. Why doesn't that go with them? Why can't you take your items with you when you vaporize? Well, we'll, we'll talk about the physics when we get there. In the uh, book, there are fillings left on seats. I did, like, he did have someone that left their Coke spoon. I thought that was a funny touch. I do feel bad for Diana, the blind girl. Like, her Aunt Vicky's gone. I thought Aunt Vicky was going to be part of this ensemble. No, she's gone. And then, yeah, she starts feeling around and she grabs a wig and thinks it's a scalp, a human scalp. Who's been killed? Yeah, that wouldn't be my first conclusion. Like, I understand yeah, I'm alone and no one's answering me is like a nightmare that many people would have. A dream where you're wandering around, can't find anyone. But you find a wig and you go, who's been killed? It's a weird grabber. But okay, we're now into the mystery of 
uh, what's going to take an, an hour to get this plane to land and for them to conclude what's going on. That is one of my big complaints with this. Again, I thought we were going to get a lot of character development through this first night because we didn't get all those backstories before they got on the plane. I'm like, okay, that's what this flight will be about if we're not going to get to the bad CGI Pac-Man. And wow, it's just a lot of talking on a plane. I'm not learning much about the characters. I can't believe they just twiddled their thumbs for two hours. Yeah, none of these dogs bark, that's for sure. Truthfully, I know, Stuart, you said, look at the previous miniseries, the cast has never been big name, but never have they been this bland. You know, who was Molly Ringwald at the time of the stand? What You're like, oh, hey, Molly Ringwald. I haven't seen her in a while. Same with Rob Lowe. And in It, you had Richard Mazur, who was a bigger name than anyone here, and you had Harry Anderson here. Bronson Pinchot is your most famous actor for a silly part, too. You might as well have Urkel, right? I mean, like, he's known for doing a, a shtick. Yeah, when Nick puts him in what Bethany calls a nose hold, I've never heard anyone go, <laughs> whoa, a nose hold. Like, I guess that's what that's called. Technically, sure. It's a lethal British move. Don't yeah. fuck with them. The MI6 deadly nose snap. In the book, he does that, and in the book, I go, okay, that's unusual. In the movie, he does that, and I'm like, Bronson Pinchot has two free arms. Why is he doing nothing? <laughs> yeah, help me out with any of this. I mean, it was a problem in the book. It's more so with Pinchot's interpretation. Okay, everyone realizes most of the plane is empty, and Bronson Pinchot's only concern is that he's got to get to his 9 o'clock meeting. And he's so belligerent about that that literally he starts hallucinating that other people look like glowing faceless monsters no i think according to dida i think that's how he just sees people like just everyone's a monster to him all the time he walks around and like the whole world is filled with these creatures <laughs> that to everyone else have features I had no idea what was even going on. I'm like, is Dinah seeing this? Does Bronson Pinchot have the shining all of a sudden? And he's seeing everyone with weird face? Because I couldn't even tell they were monsters. It's so bad. The thing is, the only way to take it, and it's also in the book, is that his character of Craig was already insane. That's why he was racing to the boardroom to talk about the $43 million loss excitedly, is this guy has snapped before he's getting on the plane, but his I have to be in Boston comes off like a parody of the yuppie type and the self-important, you know, a male Karen, to use the modern term. <laughs> well, that's why I want to know who to blame for this performance, because it is so over the top and so bizarre. I'm like, is this just something he got stuck in his head? Like, it's got to be this way. Is he just doing this because of the director? Because look, Toomey, you lost $43 million. You're getting fired whether you make it to that appointment or not. Like, his whole plan is to get fired. doesn't matter if he gets to the meeting. He's getting fired. Maybe he handles billion-dollar hedge funds. $43 million loss is nothing in that case. I don't know. That dude at the airport seemed like it was a big deal. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a huge number given, like, the kinds of stock market crashes that would be happening shortly thereafter. But to your question, Tom Holland, the director, does tend to like big performances. I think about Evil Ed in Fright Night, or certainly what Brad Dourif does as Chucky. I mean, I think he likes a scene stealer. But usually they've got to be good at what they do in order to earn that spotlight. Yeah, Balky doesn't have it in him to pull off this. Every instinct I would have would be, how do we remove Bronson Pinchot from this moment? He 
everything at the time, he was praising Bronson Pinchot. Praising. Mm, mm, mm. And Bronson Pinchot was saying he loves having this type of part because he's never had anything like this before. And he gets to just yell and shout so many hurtful things that it's like being in therapy. He just gets to vent his entire performance. Yeah, it's even more bizarre because it seems like he's disconnected from what's really going on. And maybe that's his coping mechanism. I'm not sure what actor could pull this off. It's really weird that a character is so fixated on getting to their business meeting that they don't care that the rapture has happened. And like, that's just how we're supposed to take it. A better actor would go to the director and be like, all right, I think we need to work on this character's motivation a little bit, maybe change it up, maybe not have him be so belligerent. You know, an actor can do a lot with a performance. Instead of getting in somebody's face and being like, I have a meeting, I need to go to Boston. He could be sitting there like Rain Man, like, I have a meeting, I, I need I need to go to Boston. It does feel autistic in that way. It does feel like a Dustin Hoffman obsessiveness, but it's not played that way. No, I'm saying that it's the actor's fault for not realizing his how silly everything he's doing is, but when everybody sucks, it's the director's fault. I mean, at first I'm like, is it the casting director's fault? Is it the producer's fault for saying you can only pay scale? But in the end, you gotta blame the director if they can't get a performance out of 10 people. Not one of them is passable here. Ah, I'm going to vote for David Morse's Yeah, passable. David Morse is fine. He's, do he's doing his David Morse thing. I think he's pretty good. He's the one at the controls trying to radio, and he doesn't go too big. When your best performance is bland mayonnaise that is not good or is it great that everyone's so terrible because again how boring would this be if everyone was just kind of meh oh it is the only thing that is keeping me you know well i gotta review it so that's keeping me <laughs> right paying attention but like if i had to watch this if i had to say the positive thing like or what's keeping my attention is all these over-the-top performances because this is bad dialogue's bad everything's bad at least yeah this buffoonery is somewhat entertaining. How could people other than Stephen King devotees like myself make it past the second commercial break here? Oh, I wouldn't have. I would have turned it up. I guess the mystery, if you are into the mystery of where did the people go, that would be the only thing keeping you there because Tom Holland says he filmed this like a movie, but he's doing these extreme close-ups and the lighting is really flat. And other than some weird, it's not a split diopter shot. I don't know if they filmed Dean Stockwell against a green screen and superimposed him on some shots, but or if they just had the lights turned up so big that they could do deep depth of field but other than that a couple of those shots this thing is ugly and uninteresting not only that it's driving me insane that people are looking out the window and saying i can't see anything and then we cut and there's clearly like ground and mountains and things poking out of the clouds like it's not a void when they go to the end they're like going to lax and they're like I, it's just the same i'm like i can see cars i can yes. literally see people yeah. down on the ground what are you talking about I backed up just to be sure. And there were, I mean, obviously it was like a Sunday at 4 a.m. The sun was rising, but there are clearly vehicles moving on that street. Yeah, the illusion that they have entered a void where no one else is there is completely wrecked all the time. Every time they look out the window. A couple of weird things here. They're going to say, I'm just going to call them the Northern Lights because I can't use that scientific lingo. I always bumble. Aurora Borealis. 
Yeah, that word. They went through that over Mojave Desert in California. I looked this up because I'm like, I've lived here my whole life. Never seen no northern lights in Southern California. Mm -mm. There are times you can see them up in Northern California. Like they act like they're like, oh, the northern lights are early this year in California. I'm like, what? This this is not a (laughs) seasonal thing. They migrate like birds. You know, they go south for the winter. In the book, it was supposed to be a very strange thing because Angle is told you can see the northern lights and he goes, in L.A.? And it, what it is, is they're seeing this phenomenon, the gash in space, and they think it's the northern lights. Yeah, I, I got questions. Why did the pilots fly into that? Because we see you have to clearly fly into it. So I don't understand that. Like, I don't even understand how the scenario came to be because you avoid that thing. I mean, it's not like V'ger. I mean, I think normally it's just a phenomenon happening in the sky that you couldn't fly into. They don't realize what they're dealing with, which is a rip in time. But they realize it on the way back. I mean, you're dealing with what looks like a giant mouth in space. Oh, no, come on. They talk about this is the origin of the universe. It's a space vagina. Okay, thank you. They literally get away (laughs) with putting a giant clit in space and saying this is the origin of mankind. Okay, I didn't want to... I was using the term gash as a double entendre there because I didn't want to be the one accused of bringing up the vagina looking, but I saw it too, yes. Oh, no, no, that was definitely something... The director thought he was getting away with something by that. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, he's pulling the real uh, H.R. Giger here with this subtlety. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. But anyway, yes, there is a rip in time. We'll never know why, but it takes all of the waking people... They're vaporized? No, they continue. Do they just, like, stay outside of the plane? as the plane goes back in time or something? (laughs) No, that's what I'm saying is are there two planes? Because the people who went through continued on to their destination is what we're told. Are you sure of that? That's what the book says. What did the movie... I couldn't even understand what the movie was trying to tell us. I feel like they just breezed over it real quick because it won't make sense. If they were just able to go through that and be fine, why is it so important that these passengers be asleep when they go back? They can't be fine. They're vaporized. That's the way that I take it. Yeah, because that's what happens to Nick, we assume. Yeah. They go to the magic place, the magic vagina. You know, they go back. But why doesn't it want their wigs and their person? Whatever. Moving on. (laughs) Yeah. This is said in the TV series because at one point, Dean Stockwell says, no, it's not something happened to the rest of the world. Something happened to us and to those passengers. We disappeared. Right. No, I think that they got erased in this moment, but maybe they continued on in time. And I don't know if they landed and then Aunt Vicky turned around and said, I don't know who I'm taking to the eye doctor. (laughs) Yeah. It's not Dinah. I don't know if that happened or what. I don't think they were forgotten. I think like... Yeah, their plane landed and it's missing 13 people. Have you seen the movie with Jodie Foster where her child disappears on the plane? No. I think that's what's happening with Dinah's caretaker. I didn't see it. So yeah, I I don't know what that means, but I know what you're talking about. And again, Kilgore Trout this. It's a cool concept as long as you don't go too deep. It's fun to think about being stuck in time and people continuing on without you. It's funny you bring up Kurt Vonnegut because he tried to write a book called Time Quake. Now I read it. About a, you know, earthquake that shifts time. And he's like, no, I feel that doing it. So like whenever I get to a part I failed at, I'm just going to tell you what my idea was and then move on. Like it's yeah. a very postmodern, bizarre book. It is a failed novel isn't yes. it? that he decided to publish. It's a very strange one. But yes, so is Stephen King's novella. <laughs> 
It's a veiled novel. But again, I kind of like something about this. You ask who would keep watching. It's got an Airport 79 vibe. You know, it's got these crazy stars. They're not as fun as Jimmy Walker and Zsa Zsa Gabor, but they have personality and they're doing big performances and it's really weird. Drink carts are flying around and luggage is falling out and they're doing the shake the camera and it makes it look like turbulence thing. And I'm kind of getting my jollies, but I definitely want to know what the hell's going on when they land. I do love how quickly Bob gets into conspiracy theories. Like, they haven't even landed yet. Yeah. He's already, like, coming up with ideas. But then he debunks them because he's a mystery writer. Deduction is his bread and butter. Like, he's very good at this. Are they just filling out time here? I know Stephen King wrote that in the book. Yes! No, this first night should have been 30 minutes. When you take a book and bring it into the screen, you're supposed to adapt it, not literalize it. And this would be something that you realize is pointless exposition that is dragging the pace down. Cut it. And no, we're going to have, what is that? A six minute scene of Dean Stockwell describing this theory and completely convincing Albert (laughs) of it. And then at the end go, but it's not true. Yeah. No, I wrote down 50 minutes until this plane lands. That is a very long time. Yeah, it definitely could have been one night, and it would be interesting to see how they could have cut this down. Yeah, this should be a 90-minute, 100-minute max movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would have been sustainable, but, you know, it wasn't the model. All Stephen King miniseries have had multiple nights, because you get big audiences for multiple nights. That's what you think you're going to do by creating it. Greed. Greed crashed this plane. Yeah, they did. But I, you know what, I'm not sure they would have flown very high, even if they had done that. But it would certainly make it more interesting to watch now if we could just get through it a whole lot faster. But we do finally land in Bangor, much to the consternation of Branson Pinchot. And again, he's going to totally like flip out. He looks like he's coming in his pants as he tears napkins. (laughs) And that suit, that suit is so ill-fitting. Maybe it's so he could run around later on in it. But like everything about him is ridiculous. Yeah, when he's tearing that paper and staring at Don, just like egging him on by tearing that paper, which I thought was supposed to sue them. That's what they'll show us throughout the movie. But at that instance, it, it seems like he's just bugging people with it. And if the movie is about anything thematically, I think it's getting at the idea of for people that are in corporate America, bankers and money makers and such, the constant pace of having to go, 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 they can't slow down or they fear death. And so it's through him and the beliefs of his father that we finally start hearing about these Langoliers of the title. Beliefs no one has, psychology that doesn't exist. I just (laughs) want to put that out there. Okay, fair enough. Sure. I love the concept, though. I mean, his father sounds a lot like mine when you get the flashback, a B plus. I mean, that's how my father was with my sisters. And I like the whole idea of... I wish parents did tell their kids that if you're lazy and don't do your chores and don't do your homework, the Langoliers are going to come and eat you. Yeah, but they only have to disprove that once and they're going to be lazy for the rest of their life. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there's that. There's always backfires on you, by the way, for one thing. Parents in the lessons they try to instill. But second of all, I don't want to live in a world where everyone believes that because obviously they see things like Bronson Pinchot where walking around, looking at everyday humans, they become glowing rainbow blobs. And that, I think, allows him to be cruel and waste money. I think that there's, again, some kind of commentary on capitalism uh, that's going on here very badly inserted into a disaster airplane storyline. I just want to talk about, like, the one bright point, like, the one 
maybe 0.3 seconds that I could strongly recommend of this mini series. Like they land, they're looking around the airport, nothing alive is there. It's empty. And I get my favorite moment with Rudy. Like he's always, he's just looking for something to eat and he approaches those <laughs> lobster tanks and like, he just kind of like half smiles and like, eh, it was worth a try. Like, I don't know. That got a sincere <laughs> chuckle out of me that like, he's like, ah, those lobsters are probably gone, but let's just check. Cause I'm starving. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Even though they're trapped in time, nothing is stasis. There is wind blowing, but what we're told through lots and lots of dialogue is that this world is slowing down. Yeah, the high heels sound weird on the asphalt, whatever that means. Lots of stuff about there not being air. So if they don't do anything, I think eventually their blood will stop flowing, their heart will stop beating. Well, they'll get eaten up by the Langoliers. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I also think that, like, literally just all function freezes. Except, Stuart, unless they hang out in the plane, because, ready? Time is trapped in the plane. Admittedly, not once does anybody have to use the bathroom. I never thought about their bodily function slowing down, but you might be onto something. Yeah, no, I definitely think that that's part of it. And again, it's a way of just writing the fact that they're walking on the tarmac and the wind is clearly blowing. There's no way they could tell the audience that, oh, this is like they're living in a freeze frame. That's the way I took it when I watched it. The, I missed the first night. So I just assumed that they were living in like, if you took one frame out of a 24 frames per second movie, like they're stuck in that. But it's, I mean, clearly there's still suns rising and setting and wind is happening. The phenomenon of the world still occurs, but it's been affected and I think slowing down as the Langoliers approach. And they, you can hear them long before you're going to see them. Yeah, they sound like Rice Krispies. Snap, crack, a pop. <laughs> you can tell these people are hungry. Very scary stuff. Very scary. Yeah, that's literally straight from the book again. Great dialogue. <laughs> I wish they were played by Rice Krispies, quite frankly. I mean, when we see them, it's awesome. <laughs> Those cartoons look way better than the CGI. And so we get, like, what would normally happen in a, on the plane, I think, we have the moment where... Craig snaps and is going to like find a gun and he's going to demand that these pilots turn that plane around and get him to Boston. Craig, he's just totally crazy, right? Like I can't sympathize with them or empath like he's just loony because if you sat down and rationally thought that you're not getting to that meeting in Boston by nine o'clock, like you don't notice this weird reality around you. Like it stops me from really getting too invested in this story because they don't want to treat it like a serious thing. People are acting not like humans act. This was killing me. He's in Bangor, Maine. What is the logical thing to do? To pull a gun and get people to take a flight or to go get a rental car? Yeah, get in a car and drive. Especially if it's empty, just steal a car and drive to Boston. It ain't that far. Yeah, but he'd probably be late for the nine o'clock meeting. And again, what's he going to do? Fly the plane to the front? I think we're supposed to think that this is what capitalists are like. They're irrational to the point of being insane when you take away their ability to make money. But the weird thing, again, that I can't wrap my head around is... This is not him trying to fix the money loss problem. This is him racing as hard as he can to be shamed by a, a board of directors. That is what's so weird. He wants to get fired for losing this money. If he doesn't show up to that meeting to explain himself, he's still getting fired. Right. Then just quit, right? Give him the middle yeah. finger. Don't even get on the plane if you really have no intention of fixing the problem it would make a little more sense if he thought that getting to Boston could correct the problem. 
the problem is, to me is he's insane before he got on the plane. I think he should be in trouble before he got on the plane. Yes. And then this trying to deal with the fact that he has traveled through time makes him snap, which is how it is in most of the Stephen King stories. Is just, they start off on edge and they end completely cracked. But here, this guy's cracked before he ever got near the plane. That plus a psychic girl, plus a plane that travels through time. Again, the writing rule is usually <laughs> you get one, one supernatural thing. Otherwise, it gets too complex. Mm. And there's going to be time Pac-Mans to eat the ghost past. <laughs> yeah, so, but I'd go with that as part of the time travel. Like, that is the end goal of the time travel. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah, I think it's a fun idea. I really do think that's a nifty idea. But- the psychic and the insane guy and the time travel. Yeah, the book is not good. That's why I would argue that like it feels like all high concept and very poor execution. I knew on the page that this drama wasn't going to be good. And you're right. It's more or less faithful. It's more or less hitting all the same notes. Only these actors aren't doing anything to try and like elevate the material. Again, when we have like... Albert sweeping in there with his violin case to rescue Bethany and taking a bullet and all. These things are so clumsy. Yeah. Why would anyone come back for night two? This is a joke. And as we get into the second night here, who matters? Like, we we get a lot of stuff with Toomey going crazy and trying to shoot someone. And he gets knocked out and tied up. And then he gets loose. And then he gets knocked out by a toaster. Like, who cares about Laurel and her date in Boston? Who cares about any of these characters, really? Dinah and her eye operation. I guess they try to give her more of a park. She's pleading for Toomey not to be killed. But you gave me an ensemble. And then you don't have a story for any of these characters. Focus on Rudy. And then him just trying to find a good sandwich. <laughs> that is the best part of this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's Jenkins' movie at, in the middle of this, right? It, is the mystery writer who is just going around being like, no, 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 this sandwich doesn't taste spoiled. It tastes tasteless. I'm like, okay, Zagats, whatever. But like, <laughs> he's the one like figuring out all this shit about like, no, you know, maybe we're just stuck 15 minutes in the past. And blah. I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I do love how fast his deduction gets to time travel. Like, that would be very low on my list. Maybe I'm not a mystery writer like he is, but time travel? Lots of other explanations before I get there. Could you have made it that it was a scientist and he had a machine on the plane and it caused the rift? I mean, could you have done it? I mean, that's really, like, 1950s corny, but I almost feel like that might be a better way to go. <laughs> Seriously, this was my biggest problem with the book, though. And they're, unfortunately, they're not deciding that the book needs any improvement, probably because Stephen King was involved. You know, he shows up in this. He probably was on set every day. I mean, he lives in Bangor. So, I mean, he <laughs> probably was right there. And somebody's like, I'm going to change... I wouldn't change that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, Tom Holland says King was hands off, but if he was hands off, why would you not change anything from this book? The fact that you've got a character named Bob just espousing everything, that is bad writing, especially on screen where here's the rule is show, don't tell. This book is telling everything. I mean, that kind of was Dean Stockwell's role in Quantum Leap. 
Yeah. And how would anyone come to this conclusion naturally? That's what I'm saying. Time travel. <laughs> I don't think you could. It does require someone to just monologue it all. And I just want to, again, I want to dwell on a little compliment that I have is that it's actually kind of a cool original idea of time travel. Normally, we've seen a lot of movies where people go into the past and like, yeah, they can change. You know, they see their parents and they know that if they do something that makes them not get together, they'll vaporize in midair or something. Here, the idea is like there's no hope that you could ever change the future because the past is so disconnected. There is no time, basically. Yeah, everyone has left this behind. There's a shell left behind, and so you can't stop JFK's assassin. You can't do the things that people talk about going back in time and killing Hitler. And where I went is I'm trying to look at all these clues, like uh, if you had a match with you on the plane, it will work, but if you find a match in the airport, it won't work. I'm, I'm like, oh, are they dead? Is this going to be about them like trying to get out of hell or something, fly out of hell in an airplane? Because again, that's where my mind's going to go before time travel. Like, oh, we died on the plane. The plane crashed and somehow this is the afterlife. The mechanics of the story could be identical if they were in hell. That's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, it is a kind of purgatory that they find themselves in. And I do feel... I mean, I feel it. And again, so here come the minions. Again, they have kind of a Spielbergian device with these power lines that start falling over and trees. I like the idea of building the mystery of like, wow, something big and scary is coming. But you better deliver, right? Like, you got to have a T-Rex coming out of that thing. It can't look like what we're about to see. Like, it just can't. Oh, I mean, we had Jurassic Park the year before this. I know they don't got Spielberg money. They don't have to go that big. But really, this is the best? Like this? Someone looked at this and said, eh. I have got to read you what the animation director said in the magazine before this was out. I hope he never worked again. There was a discussion. Will the Langoliers be puppets or CGI? Because Stephen King was very unhappy with how it looked at the end of it when it became the big spider. Sure. I think everybody was unhappy with that. Yeah, I can understand that. And so they discussed it. Stephen King was involved in the discussion and was like, puppet or CGI? They decided to go CGI. And the artist said, the Langoliers can display an array of almost human emotions and facial movements. Wait, 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 wait. They're they're saying... We could see different emotions going through these monsters if we pay close attention at the end. Yes. Okay. Please keep going. This is great. I love it. Never once will you think of our monsters as fake or cartoonish. They're alive. Never once. Never once. Never. Never. Not at all. Now, how about not only once? <laughs> I was wondering who played them. Everyone watched this and they're like, oh my God, monsters really do exist. There's no way these can be fake. <laughs> Never once will people doubt no, these no. creations. They're alive. They're real. They're actors. That's a quote. (laughs) Now, I'm wondering, is this what he said to the producer of the film when he overcharged them (laughs) for the CGI money that took away from being able to hire a cast? Did he sit there and say, I'm giving you a live, real actors? And they're like, here's $20 million and had no money left? You know what? Maybe Toomey lost $43 million by hiring this artist. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I guess there really was no money left because I watched this and like I knew it was coming. I'd seen it before. I did not know the extent of it, like that they were going to like pack me on their way through the earth and like the runway was just going to fall into the void. Wow, it gets bizarre. But look, at this point, you look at this and you go, oh, let's just do miniatures of like earth crumbling apart into a black hole. Anything would be better. Like go more conceptual. Do not show these teethy Pac-Men chewing things up. It's awful. It's terrible. Never ending story had the nothing, right? It was a big cloud that kind of swallowed everything up. I think you want to like do whatever you can to just make it really amorphous. Don't give it a face. Don't try to make it distinctive. If this is how it's going to stand out. I understand what King was doing. I mean, you have to have a ticking clock. You can't just have these people standing around for days eating tasteless food and being like, well, it's today the day we fly back. So you've got to give these Langoliers. But Stephen King has always had a problem with endings. And the way he described it, they were just these balls that like rolled around the earth and ate it. Yeah. Toomey describes them as teeth and fur. And little legs. Again, that's kind of fun. Are they critters or are they munchies? Yeah, critters. <laughs> uh, we saw this movie, 1986. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they roll around. Uh, is it a ghoulie in the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> These reminded me nothing so much as if in 1991, around the time of Lawnmower Man, they decided to remake Little Shop of Horrors, and instead of a puppet for Audrey 2, they did CGI. That's what I imagine this to be. It looks like a really fun video game. Like, I wish that I could play like Yeah, it's called Pac-Man or Dig Dug. Dig Dug, yeah. Like, you just go around and you eat all the cherries. Mr. Do, you know, like you <laughs> eat the cherries and like these, th- yeah, that's, there's something very primal and fun about it as a game, but you don't dramatize this. You don't leave your poor actors who, again, are only C-listers anyway, but they deserve better than to perform against this. That Bronson Pinchot has to have a complete and total mental breakdown in which he imagines the meeting from Boston to magically appear on the tarmac because the psychic shining girl makes him? Or he's just crazy? Yeah, he needs to be left alive. She makes a big point. Don't kill him, don't kill him, Nick, don't kill him. He needs to be left alive so he can have a freak out and lead some of the Pac-Men away from the plane, I think. So he's going to die anyway, but they needed him as a diversion. So here's the only way I can understand this is, and in the book they discuss, they're not the first people to ever travel back in time like this. It probably happened to Amelia Earhart. <laughs> yes, they did. They did slip that <laughs> chestnut in. Yeah, I mean, they're, those Northern Lights, over LA year round I mean who knows how many millions have gone back in time apparently the Langoliers really know something's wrong if there's a person there they're gonna eat everything anyway but if there's a person they're going to it first oh that's why the facial expression on the monster changed for that scene because it saw a person I'm kidding there was no facial expression (laughs) I think it is supposed to look like his dad. I mean, I do think we, when we see his dad and he's taunting him with like, if you're lazy and you lay about and you don't do your job and they're going to eat you. I mean, I think that this is the motivator. This is his dad come back to life in this form to devour him for, for not making his meeting. But not before Dinah gives him his final wish. She is going to let him leave the world happy by him thinking he's made it to Boston and all the people are there and the chairman of the board is Stephen King. She's doing that. You, you That's her. That's a gift for stabbing her? 
Yeah, it's it, we haven't even mentioned the fact that, yeah, all of this preface was the fact that he went on, a, like, if I can't shoot anybody, I'm just going to stab a bitch. And just, like, r- ran around with, like, scissors and got beat down by a toaster. I mean, these scenes, these are some wacko, crazy-ass scenes. Worthy of a Steven Weber shining. <laughs> Which would come out the next year. Yeah, I mean, if you thought that shit was ridiculous with, like, kissing, kissing and Tony floating in the sky, this is, like, one up in it. This is, like, oh, yeah, I I see you that and raise you like I love the fact everyone is worried about Bronson Pinchot and whether he's okay or not but like Don got stabbed in the back and nobody even like checks his pulse they're like eh, <laughs> whatever like stepping over him as they're running to the plane because they got to find a stretcher for Dinah like that's for Dinah like the black guy can just black lives don't matter here like they're just gonna no. leave that guy down there like never gotta save the blind white girl for the operation she's never gonna get not one guy is like like, concerned about what happened to Don. And why should you pay attention to him? Because the character has meant nothing. But it's just kind of funny to see where, like, the interest flows here. Like, Don exists to die. And Dinah, the actress who's playing Dinah, is not playing blind very well. Because once she gets stabbed... No, she's looking right at Nick, who's trying to do this operation on her. She's making eye contact with people. Yes. <laughs> but maybe that's her shining power. Did she not ever even see a Ray Charles music video before taking this role? Stevie Wonder people? I mean, come on. I mean, admittedly, I'm not the most knowledgeable about visually impaired people, but I know they don't make eye contact. Yeah, I wonder, again, who is winning this race? We've really railed on Bronson Pinchot because he's given the most outrageous things to do, but Dinah might actually be worse. She is. She might be the worst thing in this movie. She is. She is worse than Jake Lloyd in Phantom Menace. That's how bad she is. <laughs> but look, look, maybe this actress went on to do many things. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. She did. Okay. She really went on to do other stuff, including production. Okay. I, all I got to say is I, I look at Balky like he had a sitcom. Like he should, you know, he made millions of people laugh on TGI Fridays on uh, ABC. Dean Stockwell. I got higher expectations for people I know than this kid. Yeah, even Dean Stockwell, an actor who I have liked in a lot of things, he's doing the best he can here. I feel bad for him. I feel like of everybody, he's giving the most effort and he's given the heaviest load. Mm. I mean, Broadhead Pinchot is chewing up the scenery, but... Dean Stockwell is speaking for probably 30 to 40% of the screen time here. Yeah, he's got to say some ridiculous stuff and he doesn't have a funny little calculator to be punching numbers into like in Quantum Leap to distract you. Or Sam to play off of. I think Albert's really awful too. I mean, he's got this arc where again, he's like got to... Arc? No one has an arc, Stuart. Well, he's got to save his girl by like wrapping up a toaster and swinging it around. By the way, (laughs) did you recognize him? Should I? Yeah, this is Paul from Sleepaway Camp. He has his head attached, so maybe you wouldn't. Oh, okay. Christopher Collette (laughs) is from Sleepaway Camp? Yeah, yeah, he's he's the guy that rolls away in the end. Oh, wow. He went to the waterfront out for the social, yeah. Yeah. I wish somebody had chopped his head off here. Yeah, he's equally bad. Again, all of these people are doing Olympic kind of like vaulting for the ring about, no, I will be the worst. No, I will be the worst. It's really entertaining. Maybe when they're paid this little, they just don't even care to find motivation. They're just going to read their lines. This is why Rudy is the champion. This dude just <laughs> sleeps and eats in this whole movie. Like, I feel like he probably had a bigger role. And he's like, nah, nah, I'm, I don't get paid to do that. I'm going to sleep and eat. No, I, I feel like he read the book and is like, this is the role I want. <laughs> yeah, I, you you guys carry the movie. 
I'll lay back. We're all getting paid the same amount of scale. I'm going to do the littlest work. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment. I wanted to say, no matter what I think about the movie, everyone should find on YouTube this 10-minute stretch of the Langoliers attacking. It's extraordinary. It's really golden. It's amazing to watch. But unfortunately, Jacob, you kind of already indicated, it's not the whole climax. We're not even at the end. You say Stephen King has trouble with the endings. This is the middle of the second night. Yeah, this was a shock to me. I thought, okay, we fly through the space vagina and everything's fixed. I didn't even think about the sleeping thing. I was just ready for this to be done. 40 more minutes. And they've done this throughout this whole series. It's like, here's a problem. Oh, we got all this gasoline for the plane, but oh, it doesn't work because it's from the past. But no, time is trapped in the plane, so it will work if we just give it a few moments to start up. Throughout this film, they're always raising problems. I'm not not even, I just want to get through it. I'm not thinking about the logic because there is none to this movie. But Jacob, as you said before, a big issue is none of these characters have arcs. I mean, yes, we do see Albert end up wooing the drug addict. Yes, they all have arcs. (laughs) What are you guys talking about? Well, they're just bad arcs. They're just disaster movie arcs. Rudy gets a sandwich at the end. Dinah dies. No, 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 no. I want to hear this. Tell me Dean Stockwell's arc. No, all right. So not everyone. Dean Stockwell exists to explain the movie to the other characters that have arcs. He himself is not a character. He gets no love story. We don't even know what he was going to Boston to do. Okay, Albert. You're saying Albert's arc was that he learned to pick up a toaster? Well... Yes. Or he learned when you pick up a toaster, bad things can happen. He has an arc in the book where he wanted to be an action hero and then realized it's a bad thing, but that's never put here. Don't you learn that lesson from Nick, not a toaster? But Nick, let's go with Nick. Nick has an arc. I was getting there. Nick is the one person with an arc. But can you tell me before we get to Nick what Engel's arc is? Yes. He started out by having a disastrous plane flight where he almost killed all his passengers for a pressure leak. And then he realized changing the pressure will actually save them. That's an arc. Okay. That's not an arc. That's stupid. (laughs) I mean, it is what it is. That's called Chekhov's pressure leak. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I mean, an arc means the character is fundamentally different (laughs) at the end of the film. I know, Arnie. This is, come on. Like, you don't demand these things of a stupid action movie. It is what it is. It's kind of fun. But unfortunately, my problem is not that these characters haven't fulfilled some kind of dramatic destiny, but that it's like 40 minutes? Really? Of just like floating? I was shocked. I could not believe. Just floating around talking about like, yeah, I was supposed to knock off this chick, but I guess I will never get to do that. Can you go and apologize to her for me? Yeah. Well, can can we get to the love story? I mean, my God. (laughs) If we must. (laughs) Because Laurel was headed across country to meet a guy from a singles ad. You know she's desperate. And now you got this suave James Bond. Nick's a smart dude. This is why he works for the queen. Like, he picks up on these clues. He's like, ah, she's desperate. She's looking for a man. I can score right now. Yeah. Mile high club. Here we come. (laughs) Once you go plain, it's never the same. (laughs) Okay. So they fall in love because, you know, the universe is being eaten around them and there's nobody left. So he is going to make the self-sacrifice choice that someone has to stay awake to turn the pressure knob. And that's going to be him. He deserves to die because he's killed people. But he is going to ask her to help him atone for the Belfast church, which, I mean, who isn't laughing? This stuff is hysterical. It made me really wonder if Joss Whedon is a fan of this because Nick has read in his ledger. 
Tell my dad about the time I bought him the daisies. You write that line and you laugh all night and then you cross it out. Like you never, you never let an actor see it, much less say it. But it's straight from King's prose and King <laughs> likes things that are faithful to his prose. It is faithful to that story. That, is, that it is. Seriously, Jacob, every line they say where we don't have time to dance, tell my father, some people call him the gaffa. I mean, all of this is straight from the book. <laughs> oh, I was rolling. I it's was great. I mean, this yes. is tears in my. This is exactly what you want in an airplane disaster movie. Like this, I just wish it came with more frequency. It's the kind of thing that, like, it, it perks you up and it helps because so much of this is just dull. Of just like people sitting around. You're right, eating bad sandwiches. So. When we get a moment like this, you really got to savor it. But there's no time to dance, Stuart. There's no time to savor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's 40 minutes to savor. And it takes, again, forever for them to fly into the space vagina. But yet it's so much faster paced than the book because there's this huge discussion where King has to explain to you that, yes, a pilot could decrease air pressure and knock out the passengers because there's the question... Well, why don't pilots do that when there's a terrorist attack? Well, because the masks will drop and a terrorist would use the mask. I mean, he goes through every bit of explanation. King talked to some aviator for this book and he's going to make sure you know it. Yeah, and that, again, what works on the page, and I'm not saying it does, but you can throw out a little detail like that, and those aren't my issues. I'm not going to be sitting here, arms crossed, going, well, why wouldn't they always do this? No, I would think that this would never happen. I would think that what I'm seeing has no bearing to reality at all. Yeah, if you see a big glowing thing in the air, do not fly into it. I, I don't know if that's a question on the test when you become a pilot. It should be a common sense thing, but maybe they need to start quizzing for it. Yeah, and so because they, they figure out this... Very simple thing to do that takes a very long time to put into action. Eventually, they get back to the place that they left. They turned around and land in LAX. Is that going to cause some kind of problem since the plane is supposed to be... It's only been 15 minutes, right, of actual human time? I don't think there's any way to know. For all they know, they can't, They landed and Trump is president. Yeah. <laughs> okay. and, if, and, and here is the thing. I thought I, I was waiting for something maybe scarier than the Langoliers because they land in L.A. It's empty. LAX is never empty. It's a nightmare airport. I'm like, oh, they were in hell. Now they're going to be in heaven. They're going to be in the future, and they're going to see, like, fucking angels building the future for people to occupy. The city of angels is a heaven. Yes. I really thought that's where we were going to go with this. I don't know if we go to a better place. We get the future yeah, shimmering into their reality. Why does the past catch up with them? Should they always be, like, I don't know, 20 seconds in the future or whatever it is? No, I think that, again, if you think about uh, reality as being a film strip and it's the same picture, 24 frames per second, there is a moment where that frame is passing through the projector that is the now. And that's what they're trying to sync up with. They're trying to sync up with the moment where they're in the light of the projection. And they do that by standing behind a wall because I guess they don't want people to like cream their atoms, like come and smash into their atoms sure. or whatever. So they got to stand behind a wall. Yeah, yeah. Get back because who knows people could materialize <laughs> in the middle of us and that would be really embarrassing to have like a stroller stuck in my abdomen. But yeah, they hang back. Just fly through the portal again and the stroller will be left behind. <laughs> but that, yeah, again, this, can you imagine, can you imagine, again, imagine if they were in Boston and her her date is there and she's babbling on about I'm going to fluting to see the gaffer about daisies because I'm the new people. Yay! 
I mean, like you might call security, really. You might like put on the trench coat and the glasses and just slip on out of like, I don't know this woman. I ain't never going to answer an ad again. This guy placed a personal ad. He's like, great, the gaffer. Can you take your top off, please? <laughs> yeah, right. Some people, they wouldn't bother them. You're right. It's just like, okay, we can still hook up. It's fine. Whatever you want to do with your daisies. <laughs> Let's put some daisies on this thing's grave. Jacob Stewart, is the Langoliers a first-class movie? Jacob. I mean, it's Spirit Airlines. If you've ever ridden Spirit, you get that. Like, I've ridden it because it, it's cheap if you plan it right, but it's not the best trip. Like, those are some dirty-ass planes. I got so many stories about that. I'm gonna just, I know. I'm just like, like, we could just turn this podcast into, like, I hate one on Spirit. Oh, my God. I am just thinking about all my Spirit Airline flights. I hate them so much. I know, I know. It was always delayed, always at least an hour late taking off. It's so awful. I they charged me for air. Yeah, I, I got a hack that I figured out. I'm not gonna talk about it now. Do you wanna breathe on this flight? Fuck you. Oh, they charge for everything. Just as long as you fly with all your clothes on, you could get a cheap seat. That's what I would do. <laughs> No, here's what I would do. I'd pay the extra 50 bucks to get the the front seat because they're a little bit wider. It's their first class or whatever, their coach plus. And because there's <laughs> no like seats. Your couch from 20 years ago, but yeah, first class. Yeah, but because there's no seat to put your bag underneath, even though I didn't purchase overhead luggage space, I would get to put my stuff up there anyway. And that's how I get around. That, that is my spirit <laughs> airline hack for you guys to get around their overhead bag. Oh, I ain't ever flying them again, but okay. <laughs> Look, I was flying a lot, and they were cheap. Anyway, that, that's that's my not recommend for Spirit Airlines. <laughs> yeah. Was there a movie? I don't know. <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, I knew about the CGI going into this. I, that had been spoiled for me. I'd seen it. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't that bad. Because I knew at some point I was going to get this really bad CGI, and... They're really over the top with their performances, everyone here. And so I was kind of entertained. So, yes, I recognize the time was going by slowly and this was a bad movie. But I'm like, oh, I'm kind of into this because, look, Bronson Pinchot is so over the top. Here's my fix for this film. First, get rid of the CGI. Just make a, a smoke monster destroying the world. And the other thing, cut it down to 90 minutes, 100 minutes max. And most of the stuff you keep in is Bronson Pinchot. Like, I don't care how little sense the movie makes, cutting it down that much and just keeping Toomey in this film, but that's my fix. I think it would make literally as much sense if you cut the right <laughs> stuff. Mm. Look, it would be entertaining throughout. Also keep Rudy because he's the best character, but th that would be my brown arrow version of this film. Unfortunately, it's three hours long <laughs> and there's a, a lot of, you know, just like there's dead space in this movie with the past, there's a lot of dead space in this film. And so it's a rough three hour journey to get through this. It, it is like being on Spirit Airlines, this three hour trip. So yeah, it's not a recommend. It's a goofy film. I can see some people finding brown arrow pleasure in it, but it's just a little bit too long for me to, for that to sustain. So not recommend. Stuart. Yeah. First of all, I feel vindicated because I promised you the worst ABC miniseries and it is. This is worse than Tommy Knockers. Oh, I would watch this before Tommy Knockers any day. Oh, come now. The Shining remake. Like this one is absolutely for pound for pound, just for pure crazy bug nuts entertainment. This is like off the charts. You can't even believe one of the worst Stephen King adaptations, period. Like, it's way down there with Manglers. Yeah, that's why I'd watch it before Tommy Knockers or the Shining miniseries. 
series, the, yeah. the one on TV, because it's got that bug nuts pleasure for me. Yeah, well, that's the question. Is it a brown arrow? Is it a green arrow? I really do love some of it. Actually, just putting it out there, there's a little bit of it that's legitimately cool. There's a, a little bit of like a good Black Mirror episode in here somewhere. And then, like, there's some of the outrageous camp stuff that, again, just takes me back to the 70s airport movies that are so fun to watch. And, yeah, watching these actors try to make sense of it and and just falling on their face. I want to fan edit. I do think that if you could cut it down to 90 minutes, it's good. I mean, like, Bronson Pinchot being eaten by Pac-Man, the sleepaway camp kid beating people with toasters. That nose hold. (laughs) I mean... There is stuff here that is total brown arrow and worthy of your bad movie night. Just make sure it's one night and not two. Find a way to see the best stuff and use the fast forward button liberally. But if you're going to sit through the whole thing, I have to go with red because this movie deserves that. But there is a good time to be had if you manage to find yourself watching a movie on your phone in the airport. (laughs) I have to respectfully disagree. You love this movie. Green Arrow all the way. <laughs> it's so good. Underrated. Uh, yeah, why isn't it in the book? <laughs> it, it's so underrated, it wouldn't even fit in the book. I mean, this deserves a book alone. <laughs> but yet it had to share with three others in Four Past Midnight. But my problem is, yes, I think the pacing is the most fatal thing about this movie. The thing about King's book And it's always the difference between a book and a movie is a book, you can read pages faster and slower as you go and set your own pace as a reader. And a movie is going to clock in at what the director and editor say it clocks in at. I mean, with the right software, you could speed it up or slow it down, but then you'd make Judd Apatow mad. (laughs) That is is true. I think I'd make Judd Apatow mad by showing him this. (laughs) But I don't think even a 90-minute edit or a 60-minute edit making this, you know, just an episode of The New Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits would work because you're still going to be left with such terrible performances. And while they're bad... Are they brown arrow worthy bad? I guess I guess Bronson Pinchot and Dinah and the Langolier animation is, but there's just so much else going around that is just unpleasant to watch. It is truly I, I never thought anything could be worse than kiss and kiss, and that's what I've been missing. But again, this is worse than Tommy Knockers, and that's saying something. Okay, so you agree with me that much. This is the worst ABC miniseries of King. I think this is the worst King we've reviewed. Wow. Mangler 3's got nothing on this. I defended Mangler 3. I didn't recommend it, but I defended it versus the hate. Tarantino-esque, I believe you said. <laughs> yeah, you did say that. Lawnmower Man 2, <laughs> any Mangler... Creep Show 3. I mean, I'm going deep about like the very worst. That is bad. <laughs> Creep Show 3. You know what? Creep Show 3 still had more going for it with that, like, where's my daughter? You turned her into a rabbit sketch. <laughs> is that more going on or less? It's hard to know. Even the most incompetent. This may not be the most incompetent, but it's the most unwatchable, especially given its bloated length. It is as tasteless as a beer from in the slight past. Not recommend. Yeah. All right. The good news is, guys, except for one, which I've never seen, we're done with the ABC TV miniseries. There's more TV to come, but ABC did something called Storm of the Century, which I think is a, an original that we'll get to some year. But they got out of the business. We've covered 
most of what they've done. Yeah, the, the company closed after this. The production company that was making these in partnership with ABC, it went away. As it should, like, no one should ever work again that was involved with this. Sorry, David Morris, you should never have worked again. <laughs> They're in the past being eaten by Langoliers. There were some mergers and acquisitions and Viacom and things, but this was the end of the production company, except the producer and Tom Holland and Stephen King all went on to thinner. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And we've already reviewed that. Well, we're not done with Four Past Midnight. Another story from that collection did get adapted, and we're covering it as our next Stephen King installment. Secret Window, Johnny Depp. I haven't seen it, but hey, you're already on a higher level, right? When you got a A-list star? Yeah, that gives me some hope. Saw it in theaters, haven't seen it since. Looking forward to revisiting. We'll get to that next week. But meanwhile, this Friday is your last chance for summer camp with Brock, Stewart, and me. Yeah, we're returning to Sleepaway Camp for the fifth and final time. It will cap off a kind of extended platinum series. Normally, we only do three movies in that level, but we've done five because, believe it or not, that little B-movie 80s summer camp horror film got five installments somehow. I can't wait to hear your guys' reaction to Alan, (laughs) the greatest film character ever created. Better than anyone in the Langoliers, I'll give you that. (laughs) (laughs) He should have been on that plane. He's got twice the overacting chops that Bronson Pinchot has. And because of the COVID situation making our schedule very fluid, our donation drive is ending a little earlier than intended. So you have until August 14th to donate if you want to hear Sleepaway Camp, the Tom Cruise retrospective, including Top Gun. And Top Gun 2, whenever that comes out. Candyman and us. And in the higher levels, Ghostbusters and The Purge, both of which have sequels coming out someday. (laughs) Not this year. They were supposed to, but... There's a Candyman film, there's a Top Gun, a Ghostbusters, there's everything. Everything was supposed to come out. All of our leading up to weekend of releases, now we're just hoping we're leading up to (laughs) year of release. (laughs) (laughs) Will I live long enough to see a movie get released again? I don't know. So we hope you can join us at camp this Saturday. And thank you for listening to Now Playing. And on behalf of the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for joining us on this trip. We know you have a choice when choosing podcast entertainment, and we want to thank you for listening to us. We look forward to talking to you again in the near future. of eternity, always following behind, cleaning up the mess in the most efficient way possible, by eating it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. My God, that was the most wonderful thing! (laughs) Cool! Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. I've been sitting here running all these old stories through my head. You know, time warps, space warps, alien raiding party. 
And also come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. They were here and they'll be back. They'll be back for you, you lazy sack of dirt! In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Been a flight to remember. Even without the movie in the Freeman Moses. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. And I like listening to you too. It makes me feel better. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I can't help but feeling that we're running out of time and fast. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you ready to get with the program? You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Do you understand that the economic fate of nations may hinge on this meeting? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Time! What the hell do you know about time? Ask me about time! Ask me! Time is short, sir! Associate produced by Jason. I burst on a target on my own head! I went out! I went out! Now Playing is edited by Arnie. You've got great ears, son. I hear what I hear. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Listen to me. Listen very carefully. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You know something, don't you? I might, but then I might not. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Now are you going to look at the big picture or do I have to let them All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. We're here and they'll be back. They'll be back for you, you lazy sack of dirt! Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You realize I can, I can sue this entire airline for $30 million and name you as primary respondent? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I think it's time to fish or cut bait.
starring Patricia Wedding. <laughs> In my notes, I actually had a typo. Dead Stockwell. 